Let's pray over God's word today. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to worship, to sing of your presence. God, to remind us that um, you are the God over all history. You were there before time. You are over all time, and you will be there for all eternity. And we welcome you, Lord, into our time. We pray that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would give your church ears to hear what the Holy Spirit and your Holy Word say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a sermon series called Winning Over Worry. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Today and next week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Today's sermon is entitled, The Church Isn't Finished. Praise the Lord. So in this current sermon series, Winning Over Worry, we've tried to address some of the valid concerns and fears that we're all facing in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 panic. I mean, there's all across the spectrum um, opinions on this is nothing and this is everything and we don't need to worry about it. We really need to worry about it. Maybe I'll worry about it a little bit. Maybe I'll cover my face for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll never cover it. And, And you can know. I mean, this is going to shock you if you know me personally, that I have a strongly held opinion about it, right? I mean, I hardly have a strongly held opinion about anything. Or I have a strongly held opinion about almost everything, right? And I have an opinion about this, but wherever you're at in this, I'm not out to try to change your mind about it. I'm out to love you in Jesus' name through it. Um, So wherever you're at, I love you and I support you and um, encourage you to be kind and gracious to those who have a different opinion than you. And uh, one way or another, we're going to continue to navigate reality as it is in our um, community and in our state and our nation and in this world through this time. Um, So in light of all that, we've discussed the fear of plagues, pandemics, the loss of food, clothing, money, retirement, agonizing afflictions, and even the destruction of our physical bodies. But now let's move beyond just considering it from the perspective of our individual personal lives. What hope do we have as a church community? What hope do we have as Desert Hills Community Church to fulfill our mission of building God's kingdom on earth by leading others to saving faith in Jesus Christ during this time. Community is hard to have in isolation, right? Um, Even those of us who aren't isolating are still isolated more than normal because some of the people that we love and interact with are. And so there's nobody that I know of, not a single person, that's not affected to some degree by this. Um, How are we lifting up our church members, and our community at a time when it's needed most, when it's needed like never before. And what will the future of Desert Hills look like after COVID-19? Those are legitimate questions, and those are godly concerns. But on a grander scale even, what about the universal church, the church universal, the church worldwide, the church everywhere that it exists, comprised of all the believers in Jesus Christ all around the world. What hope is there for the future of God's universal church? Um, Will God's church flourish? Will it stymie? Uh, People down 
throughout time have wondered over and over again about the future viability of the church. Atheists and agnostics, skeptics and cynics have predicted the death of the church uh, the whole time the church has existed. Will the current state-imposed closure of public gatherings in some areas have long-term detrimental effects on the church of Jesus Christ? Or will the church flourish and grow? These questions and more um, can be answered for us as we encounter the Gospel of Matthew in today's passage, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Please follow along as I read that passage for us this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. So before we get to the church, we need to make sure we properly identify the head of the church. Let's take a look now at, in this passage, the people's beliefs about Jesus. So Matthew begins his account of this day in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus and his disciples had been up and down Israel by this time. And so most Jewish people have had time to form an opinion about him. Jesus kicks off this monumental exchange by asking his disciples what people think about him. The place that Jesus chose for this conversation was very revealing. Caesarea Philippi was in Gentile territory, where it wasn't primarily a Jewish population. It was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was actually the farthest north Jesus ever traveled during his earthly ministry. Jesus chose a place known for its pagan religions. It had been a center for Baal worship. Baal was the supposed Canaanite fertility god. One scholar counted 14 temples of Baal worship in the area. There was a hill with a cavern that contained a spring, which was the legendary birthplace of the Greek god Pan, the Greek god of fertility in nature. As the disciples approached Caesarea Philippi, they would have seen a glistening white temple, Caesar's temple. That's why it was called Caesarea Philippi. It had been renamed by the Romans. 
they would have been struck by the might and declared divinity of the emperor represented in that large, glistening, white structure. It was a thoroughly pagan place. It was under the shadow of rival religions and Caesar's own temple that Jesus said, Who do people say the Son of Man is? I love the fact that Jesus begins with the third question third person question he didn't say who do people say i am he says who do people say the son of man is very few people mind a third person question it's unthreatening it's easier to respond to it casts the responder in the role of the expert a third person question solicits information more readily and seeks to put the responder at ease to be able to speak jesus is the master at asking pertinent questions. Now it's important to realize that Jesus never poses a question to gain information. He's not taking a poll here, feeling for the pulse of the popular opinion. When Jesus asks a question, it's a test. Jesus wants people to grapple with both their general understanding and their personal convictions on the topic. The most important skill in talking about spiritual matters And sharing your faith is learning to ask questions. To grow in this skill, I'd encourage you to order a copy of a book. It's called Questioning Evangelism. Not like questioning should there be evangelism, but questioning evangelism. Using questioning as a method of evangelism. Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. Um, Great book. Easy to read. Very, very helpful. Um, He walks the reader through how to engage people in discussions on divisive topics such as, and these are phrased from um, somebody who's not a Christian's point of view, who may even be antagonistic. So here's some of the topics that are discussed in the book. Why are Christians so intolerant? Why does God allow evil and suffering? Why are Christians so homophobic? Um, As a follower of Jesus, I don't believe any of those are even true. And I can get all humped up and offended and and stop the conversation right there, right? But if that's where somebody's coming from, and Jesus died for their sins, and Jesus did die for their sins, so when that's where somebody's coming from, we need to be able to engage them and talk through that with them in a way that leads them closer to faith in Christ or to faith in Christ. So, Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. So during this time, um, you know, official like church-wide outreach activities and stuff like that are um, difficult or impossible to enact. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, well, I have a new um, set of letters for you to remember what we should do, okay? Um, Like I said earlier in the service, Friday Lucy went to the doctor and went inside to the walk-in clinic to check in. And she told him, you know, she had, she was coughing and had stuff in her sinuses. And so they immediately told her to go get, go outside and get back in your car, park in the handicapped parking spot, and a doctor and nurse will come out to you. And when they came out, they were head to toe covered in personal protective equipment. They had on the booties, they had on the gloves, they had on a, on a full body disposable coverall they had a mask and something over their their hair on and 
and they talked to her from a distance away from the window and, you know, only got close for as long as they had to and then backed up again. And then when they went inside, they, they took off that disposable gear and got rid of it before they went back in the building. So what's that gear called? Personal Protective Equipment, PPE. So here's the PPE for evangelism in the church during this pandemic, okay? Prayer and personal evangelism. Um, If you know me and my style as a pastor, I've always promoted personal evangelism as the first and biggest uh, outreach activity of the church. I've always promoted that. I've I've used terms like organic outreach, where everything that we do individually and as a church includes people that don't currently come here on a regular basis that may or may not know Christ as Savior and Lord. So, PPE. We have PPE as members of God's kingdom and as members of Desert Hills Community Church. Prayer and personal evangelism. Nothing can stop our personal evangelism. Okay? So, there you go. PPE. Prayer and personal evangelism. And let us be focused. Let us... Um, find people that we can have conversations and let us use the tool of questioning evangelism to talk to people from where they're at into the kingdom of God. Um, Even if you don't read the book, and I really hope you do, um, begin to ask the Lord to grant grant you grace to learn the art of listening and asking the right questions and asking those questions in a way that frees the responder up to give an honest and full response. Um, It also helps to have the right answers as well. You can pray for that too, to have answers to their questions. Think of things in life from their point of view. Think of somebody who does think the church is homophobic. And what's your response that won't like shoot um, arrows at them, but will free them up to realize that we're not. Um, so do all those things. So I renewed my... my. Um, I spent some time yesterday talking myself through the Roman road. And, and uh, if we're talking to people about those other questions, you know, and they're freeing them up to ask us those questions and answer them, then... Um, we don't necessarily want to go straight to Scripture. Christian faith is based on the Holy Bible, and we, do, we have to get to Scripture eventually, but that's not always the starting point. But when it is time to share what Scripture says about how you're saved, there's a method, a set of Scriptures called the Roman Road, because all the passages are in the book of Romans. Okay? So I'm not going to read... It's five scripture passages. I'm not going to read them to you, but I'm going to give you the references. And, and uh, so you can memorize all four passages, or you can just memorize where they are and, and open up the book of Romans when it comes to that time to get scriptural in leading someone to faith in Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Then Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And this is out of order in the flow through the book. But the third one is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Um, The fourth one is Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 
And then the last passage is Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I'll give you those again. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Second is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Third is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Fourth is Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And the last one, the fifth one, is Romans chapter 10, verse 13. So when somebody, when you've answered their questions and they're open to faith in Christ, lead them through those scripture passages so that they, they know God's eternal word says that, that they are saved now and for eternity by faith in Jesus Christ. It encourages them to repent of their sins, to stop and turn the other way, to confess their sins, to speak them to Jesus and give them to Him, knowing that Jesus loves them and is for them, and when they express faith in Him, He saves them. And there's no exception to that. So, the Roman road, we can use that. Ask the Lord to grant you grace to learn the art of listening and asking the right questions. And it helps to have the right answers. You can pray for that too. Before we leave verse 13, it's worth noting that Jesus uses the expression, Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite name for himself. He used this more than anything else to describe himself and identify himself in Scripture. And... Um, some have understood the title Son of Man as a reference to Jesus' humanity, and then the Son of God as speaking of his deity, his godhood. Um, And that seems reasonable, but I don't think that's so. I don't think that's what Scripture (laughs) reveals to us. Son of Man is used 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew, and every single one of those 31 times, Son of Man points to Jesus as God himself. Even in the way Jesus posed his question to the disciples, he's hinting at his identity. Who do people say the Son of Man is, speaking of himself? Jesus is indeed the master questioner and conversationalist. Now, the disciples' answer to Jesus' question is found in the next verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The disciples offered a sampling of the current views about Jesus, and they're all pretty complimentary. The crowds know that Jesus is unique, he's unusual. They regard him as someone special. Uh, This is typical of people who have no faith in Jesus. They admire Jesus in some ways, um, but they don't really see who he actually is. They tend to think Jesus is some kind of teacher or prophet. They want to put Jesus in a list. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Jesus. He's one of them too. But Jesus can't be put in a list like that. No one is on a level with him. No one is like him. Jesus is unique. He is in a category of one. And then as we go on, Peter's confession about Christ is found in verses 15 and 16 of Matthew chapter 16. 
Like any good conversationalist, Jesus turns the tables on the disciples and asks a follow-up question to his first one, Matthew chapter 15. But what about you? Now he's asking, you know, who do people say? Now he's talking to them. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus is really interested here in who his disciples think he is. Jesus emphasizes the Greek word for you. So Matthew places it as the first word in his question in the original Greek. Jesus is saying, who do you? And the use of you here is plural. He's talking to all his disciples. Who do you all? And he's up in northern Israel, but if he was down in southern Israel, he'd say, who do all y'all? Who do all y'all say I am, right? Um, Who do you say I am? Speaking to them. Speaking to us. This is a question that every person must still face and answer today. This is the most important question in determining your eternal destiny. Once we've answered this question, Jesus will continue to ask it of us. How we answer this question turns our lives, our ministries, and our eternal destinies in one direction or another. Simon Peter answers Jesus' question. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And good old Peter, this time he nails this one, man. That's a perfect answer. This confession of the identity of Jesus is one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible. You are the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. In the original language... And in most of our English versions, the phrase is only ten words. But you know what? Out of those ten words, the definite article, the word the, appears four times. Here's a direct translation out of the New Testament Greek. You are the Messiah, the Son of the God, the Living One. Not the Son among the gods, okay? And here differentiates us from a lot of our neighbors and family and friends. There's one God. It's so explicit there. You are the Messiah, the Son of the God, the Living One. Wow, what a powerful um, statement. What a um, fact-filled statement. Peter identifies Him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One. And Peter is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies. All of them are fulfilled in Jesus. The Son of God means that Jesus shares the very essence of deity, of Godhood, with God the Father. Jesus shares that. That's why elsewhere Jesus says the Father and I are one. Because they share the same essence. They are the one God. All that makes God the Father, the eternal God, belongs to the Son, Jesus Christ, as well. Furthermore, the phrase, the living one, that's in contrast to Baal and Pan, who had um, houses of worship for them there in Caesarea Philippi. Where are they at? Nobody knows. Um, In contrast to that, Jesus is called the living one, Um, defining him, Jesus, as the one true God. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, echo Peter's confession and 
and call Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Acknowledge your sin to Jesus and ask Jesus to rescue you from your sin. He's the one true God. He'll make good on His promise to give you eternal life. But you must ask Him for it. So don't delay. Do it today. What better time to be born again, to be saved by faith in Jesus, to be forgiven, to have your sins unloaded out of your life, and to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life from here on out, every day of your life on earth and into eternity. Do it today. Jesus' response to Peter and the disciples is found in the next four verses. Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Jesus' response to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, is legendary. Here, Peter confesses Christ, and this is Jesus' response to him, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Wow. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus addresses Peter by name. Interesting. And this is also the only time Peter's full name, Simon son of Jonah, occurs in Scripture. Jesus calls Peter and Peter's faith out. Jesus proclaimed that, proclaims that Peter is blessed for calling him the Messiah, the Son of the living God, where he did in verse 16. Jesus insists that Peter didn't come up with this confession. Rather, it was straight from God. Jesus is indicating that no one can confess him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, unless God himself persuades that person of the reality. To put it bluntly, if you've believed in Christ as your Savior, it's not because you're smarter, more sincere, or more sensitive to spiritual things than your neighbor. It's simply because God has revealed himself to you and persuaded you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You do need to be sensitive to that. You do need to be humble enough to respond to that because that means he's Lord and you're not. That means he's in charge and you're not. That means you're a sinner that needs to confess your sins to have them forgiven. Um, So, but if God didn't reveal that to us, we would never know. And God has revealed that to us. So we do know that. God has revealed himself and persuaded us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that spiritual reality ought to humble us to dust. God, in His amazing grace, has chosen to reveal His Son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to us. Wow. Amazing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, please stop for a moment and give God praise in your spirit for saving you by His grace. Would you ask Him to help you not to lose the shock and the awe you should experience on a daily basis that you're a child of God? Wow. And remember that it's God's desire that every person came come that every person and remember that it's God's desire that every person come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Easy for me to say. So let's join God in leading others in becoming convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, so that they 
receive his salvation like we have. PPE, prayer and personal evangelism. Jesus continues his response to Peter in uh, the next verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus utters what has become one of the most controversial statements in all of Scripture. On the surface, it doesn't sound controversial, but I'm telling you, there's 2,000-year-old division over what this passage does and does not mean. Um, There's a play on words here that isn't obvious in the English language, but it is in the original Greek of the New Testament. The words for Peter and rock in the Greek New Testament, the word for Peter is Petros, and the word for rock used here is Petra. So there's a play on words in the original language. They're related but not identical. In the original Greek, Petros is a masculine noun referring to a pebble or a stone, like you could hold in your hand, right? While Petra is a feminine noun that means a mass of rock. Okay? The big question for us is the meaning of Petra. This statement has been taken several ways. Um, Roman Catholics interpret Jesus' words to mean that Peter was the first pope. Um, In reaction to this view, many evangelical scholars argue that this rock refers to Jesus himself, or to Peter's confession of Jesus, or to faith in Jesus in general. Um, And then I have an opinion. Imagine that. I think that, that it's clear in the text that Jesus is saying, plain and simple, You are a rock, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay? Does this mean that Jesus made Peter the Pope? No. It means that Jesus chose to use Peter to build his church. Jesus isn't saying that Peter is the foundation of the church. He's saying that Peter is the first rock in the building. And Peter's the first rock because he was the first to make this statement to Jesus, You are the Messiah. Right? Interestingly, um, later on, Peter opened the kingdom for the Jewish people. In Acts chapter 2, he opened the kingdom for the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, Peter opened the kingdom for Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, which is the story of the establishment of the early church, Peter's name occurs more than 50 times. God chose to use Peter, weak as he was, to build his church. So it does seem that Jesus' prophecy here was fulfilled. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus himself is the living stone, and we're the living stones, plural, that he uses. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, used Peter to build his church. He used the other apostles to build his church. And today, he uses us in the same way to build his church. So Jesus builds his church. It's important to realize that when Jesus builds his church, he uses weak people. Someone once said, all God's giants have been weak men. And if that had been said more contemporarily, 
it might be all God's giants have been weak people because God has used men and women equally to build his church. God builds his church using flawed, weak men and women who confess Jesus Christ as the Savior, just like he's doing today. What keeps me from being cynical about the church? The church is God's idea. The church has always been full of flawed people who mess things up. But Jesus is using flawed people who confess the truth about who he is. And Jesus continues to be about building something beautiful, despite and even through our weaknesses. Praise God. The church is God's idea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us enough to save us on an individual basis and in us and through us and for us and with us building your church. Come Holy Spirit and empower us to be um, occupied with the building of your church today. God, enable us to be committed to prayer and personal evangelism. Nothing can ever take that away. And even on this day and this time, we can be about your work through prayer and personal evangelism. And so we commit to you today to serve you and honor you and to be used by you for your glory to build the church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I love you.